Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. Mm-hmm. Right, and um, the argument of it being a specific sin because the Amplified says once you go down to the to the next verse, as far as you know, those who are born of God doesn't sin, but it's really talking about habitually sinning. Like mm-hmm. you said, if it's not a perpetual thing or if it's not a deliberate thing, then that's what it's really talking about. Because in First John chapter two, where it says, "Do not sin," mm-hmm. but if any of you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, because He is the propitiation for our sin. So it's not saying that you know, oh, we're going to go through life and we may not ever completely fall and stumble, but if we do, it'll be maybe a one-time thing. We'll, we'll mourn over our sin, we'll turn back to God because if we've truly been born again, mm-hmm. spiritually transformed, mm-hmm. then we, we don't have the desire to live like the world mm-hmm. or stay in an act of habitual sin. Right. Kind of like, you know, David committing the sin with Bathsheba. If he was convicted of it, he mourned, and then he turned away, he didn't do it again. So it wasn't that, oh, okay, because David did it, then he wasn't a man of God because he still had a heart after God. He just made a mistake. He got back up, and he began to pursue holiness again. Right. So, But the only thing that I have a question about is the apostasy stance because in um, 1 John chapter 2, where he's talking about false teachers, he says, they went out from us, and I'm reading from the Amplified, they went out from us seeming at first to be Christians, but they were not really of us because they were not truly born again and spiritually transformed. Mm-hmm. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out teaching false doctrines so that it may be clearly shown that none of them are of us. Yep. So the apostasy stance that somebody can truly be saved and actually turn away from the Lord, mm-hmm. I don't agree with that stance only because... I'm like, if you've truly been saved, you mm-hmm. have truly tasted and seen and mm-hmm. been spiritually transformed, there is no way that you want to go back to the world once you have truly experienced the love of Christ. Sure. So um, this verse, I feel like, is just showing that if anybody has the ability to truly leave God, they never were of God to begin with. Mm-hmm. And that's valid. I mean, there's a lot of people who agree with you. Um, lots of... Vi- it's First uh, John 2.19. But so just so you know, what he's referring to there are the Gnostics. And he has this whole passage on the Gnostics. And he didn't consider the Gnostics true Christians. So he actually makes a distinction between his brothers who he's writing to and the Gnostics who weren't ever really their brothers. 
So, so, but, but, I mean, again, you're, you know, uh, I mean, I can line up a hundred theologians who will tell you apostasy is not possible, and, um, you know, they'll say a lot of the same things you said, and this is what I mean, it's like, I think that we just are, we're doing this, I mean, it's, it's a cool discussion, um, you know, uh, you know, you read the passages of Hebrews, you got to figure out what you're going to do with those passages when it says you've had the Holy Spirit, you've known the truth, like, you got to figure out what you're going to do with that, but at the end of the day, doesn't matter because if you're in Christ, you're saved. And if you're not in Christ, you're not saved. And the question is, can you get out of the boat? You would say, nope. Once you're in the boat, like you're locked in there, man. They put a roof over it and they chain you to the thing. Like there's no way to go anywhere. I'm, 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 I'm kidding. No, I you know. agree. I agree to the point that you can lose it. And like he stated, um, I, I say the same thing. It's like God is not going to take your salvation. You're typically going to walk away from sure. it. Because yeah. the Bible says if you abide in me, sure. then I will abide in you. So sure. if you don't Jesus abide. Christ. Well, what's the guy who wrote uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye? What's his name? Uh, Josh, Harris. Josh Harris. So Josh Harris is leader of a huge ministry. So you have to say that if you're, if, you're the, if you're the perseverance of the saints person, you have to convince me he was never, ever a Christian. Never. I mean, that's cool. If you, if you think that, that's cool. I don't, I don't really care. I mean, I'm just saying, like, that's a great example recently of someone that... I mean, he's writing books, he's, he's preaching, he's planning churches, and he just woke up and one day goes, yeah, it's all, it wasn't true. I've just decided. I've, I went away for a year, I meditated, I decided, not true. Yeah, Jesus told us that nothing could snatch us out of his hand, but he right. did not say that we could not leave his hand. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think that one you of know, the other reasons people worry about this is because I have a good friend. You know, that's the, that's the usual thing. I have a good friend that we... This is the person who ministered to me and, and that I uh, prayed the prayer of salvation with. Yes. And then that person turned away. And you want to think to yourself, they can't really turn away, can they? You don't, you don't want that to be true of them. You don't want them to be uh, eternally punished. You right. want them to be eternally secure. Right. And that's, the, that's what I hear a lot of uh, in this wanting to know the answer to this, is that people don't want to think that this person who is either so influential in their life, like this Josh Harris guy, or any of the any of the other big leaders, or someone that they personally knew that they care so much about, they don't want to think, oh, well, they're not going to be in heaven with me. Their friend, you know, and that somebody in our class was talking about that mm -hmm. recently. That yep. was like, it, you can't, you can't, you cannot determine the relationship uh, for the most part. You, you are not the you are not the arbiter of salvation. Correct. God is so the salvation of that individual and their uh, eternal state is up to God. That's right. Mm -hmm. And re regardless of whether or not they've made some public declaration of their you know apostasy or whatever, what if they hadn't made some public declaration but had decided in their hearts that they Correct. no longer believed and just never said anything? About Correct. It? And kept going to church and acting like everything was normal because there, there are people out there in our church that aren't believers. Correct. Right. Well, what's Jesus say? You're gonna have, there's gonna be people who show up and he's gonna go depart from me. I never knew you. And these are people who cast demons out in his name. Uh, I mean, again, that this is where you know we 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 should be in awe of who God is. We should you know our theme this year is wonder. We serve a God who created the universe just by saying it. 
I mean, uh, and to be on his bad side is not the place anyone should want to go. You know, like this whole vengeance is mine, said the Lord. I was watching some show the other day, and, and, the, and the person said, you know, you don't want to get revenge. And they said, uh, I'm going to leave it up to God. And they said, that's good enough for you. And he's like, that should be good enough for everyone. Like, you know, I mean, uh, we're, not we're not letting someone off the hook by letting God be the one that brings, brings the vengeance. But uh, I love your point, Matt. And, and again, to the end, at the end of the day, I think we can all just, you know, you interpret obscure scripture in light of clear passages, not the other way around. The clear, t and, and let me just say this, we don't know the disposition of anybody's eternity. We don't, like you said, it's all up to God. We cannot say, you're going, you're not, you're in, you're out. There's no way for us to know, only God knows. But what we can say definitively is scripture is unequivocal. If you're in Christ, you're saved. If you're not in Christ, you're not saved. And the toughest part about the verse from, I'm sorry, you She had her hand up, bro. Thanks a lot for jumping in. <laughs> Correct. How many of us have prayed for someone who we, we pray that God will find a way to reach them? Correct. They'll come to salvation. So that begs the question if you are guilty of whatever this thing is and however it works, right. which we haven't figured out, right. but if you're guilty of it, right. can you not then change your mind again? So, You've done for good. So both of the final two positions would say you're proving their point. The apostasy people would say, look at Hebrews. Hebrews makes it clear. If you have come to Christ and then later turned your, and rejected him, you, we got no hope for you. So that's what John's saying. That's what they would say. The baptism or the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit people would say, there's one sin you can't be forgiven from. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That, that, then it has to be that because he says they're kind of beyond hope, so don't worry about it. God will move things in his life so that it will be well preserved, you know. Because mm -hmm. that's what it takes. Yep. But it almost sounds as if like none of those mechanisms, God's not even going to try. Well, the, the, I will tell you that a lot of the scholars around the apostasy position believe that what John is alluding to is that at, at this point, God's God's got to move on them. So it's not something you need to keep worrying about. It's all got to be the Holy Spirit at that point. Yeah. Anyway, okay, I think we spend enough. Go ahead, Allison, one last thing. Absolutely. 100% agree. And I also, just to say something kind of to that point, you'll hear a lot of people say, you know, like you're trying to take away God's sovereignty by making you involved. No, God set up the criteria, yeah. right? It's not about me. If, if, you know, if I tell my son, if you clean your room, you get 10 ducks. 
Did I have to give him 10 bucks? Does he owe, does he deserve the 10 bucks? No, but I set up a system whereby if you clean the room, you get the $10. And that's all me. I completely control everything about it, right? Well, that's the thing. He set up, uh, again, this is a disputed thing a little bit, but you know, if you're on one side of the theological spectrum, he, set, he created the criteria, and that criteria is faith. Those who live by faith, Romans 1, 16, 17, will be justified, and those who do not will not. Yes. Our only activity that actually makes a difference in somebody else's salvation or sanctification is no more different than what a farmer does. All we can do is plant the seeds. Mm -hmm. And when it comes down to each person, it's yep. their direct you know, response and re reaction to God and life that's going to make the difference. And all we, the only thing we can really do to affect that is plant the seeds, whether it's by the way we live or what we speak. Yep. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Yes, ma'am. I met an old lady. I've lived a long time. That's what Ben Franklin said. He was an old man. <laughs> I, I want to say just something about that. As long as I've lived, I've seen the mystery of the Holy Spirit. And as far as trying to tie things down, which is what we in our natural mind would like to do, mm -hmm. you let the Spirit show and convict you. Mm whether even you pray for someone or not. My grandmother was a, a champion of faith to me. And when uh, behavior was apparent to her, my behavior or other youngsters, she would say, oh, I would be afraid of the judgment. <laughs> and you know, that so is true to me, <laughs> is that the personal powerful conviction of mm. the Holy Spirit and he will speak to you in scripture mm -hmm. I've seen it so many times that I had a mystery well the Holy Spirit solves mysteries Amen. to you and as long as you live when you are convinced and convicted by the Holy Spirit it's very hard to resist him he's like a holy hound mm -hmm. in heaven Amen. and he will get you Hmm. Love it. All right, that's the rest. That's class for today. So. I love it. Good stuff. Todd, did you have one? I think there might be a fourth solution. Okay. It doesn't go down the path of, of apostasy. And that is just to, to key on the fact that if you as a Christian, mm -hmm. you're praying for a brother or, or not praying, but keying in on what Mike said, this. What kind of death is this? Mm -hmm. This is a, 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 a sin that leads to, I would say, physical death. Mm -hmm. So if you are a chain smoker and you know, here's just a, a simple example, you know it's wrong, you know you're hurting your body, uh, that sin is going to lead to your physical death. Mm. And that, it's not that God doesn't heal broken lungs, he does that. Mm -hmm. But could be, if you look at the passage, well, uh, this person is willfully sinning, mm -hmm. damaging their own self, so don't bother praying for that. 
Yeah. No, uh, you're, that's a very great point. I'm glad you brought it up. And it's a valid one, and it's one that there are some scholars that take that position. In fact, they would allude back to, say, Ananias and Sapphira uh, in Acts, where they committed a sin that led to their physical death. But we probably will meet them in heaven nonetheless. They were probably legitimate Christians. So, um, yeah, very much could be an alternative option as well. Yep, good stuff. Okay. With that said, let's get back into pneumatology, study of the Holy Spirit, and we are going through a survey of the Old Testament and how the Holy Spirit had, was revealed to us uh, progressively in Scripture, and we are going to be uh, now at 1st and 2nd Samuel. We're in the historical books at this point, and um, uh, I mentioned to you guys that First and Second Samuel was was just Samuel originally, but for uh, reasons of ease of the scrolls and things like that, it, be, it was divided into now we call it First and Second Samuel. It's really one long book. So the motifs in Samuel um, are uh, things that are unique to Samuel that didn't exist in Judges. We looked at how the Holy Spirit was revealed to operate in the book of Judges and his his modus operandi, if you will, is going to continue to evolve, and we're going to continue to see new things. So the first is deliverance from a foe is no longer the principal role of the Spirit, although it does happen. If you remember in Judges, the Holy Spirit would anoint the judge, and primarily it meant military success. The judge would deliver the nation of Israel out of the, of the, the grip of a foe and restore Israel back to its place where they would worship God until, of course, they, that person died and they forgot about that. Um, the next is that the Spirit continues to designate those chosen by Yahweh, uh, though without removing the flaws of those that are empowered. And we saw this motif as well in Judges, but it, it, it becomes very apparent here that when the Holy Spirit is anointing someone in the Old Testament, at least up to this point, they don't transform. They don't become more righteous. They are just... Uh, the Holy Spirit anointing them is a way for people to n know that is who Yahweh chose. Uh, the next thing is uh, it reintroduces the motif of the Spirit's association with prophecy that we saw in Numbers 11, especially with David, and it's going to do that in new ways. And then for the first time in Scripture, we're going to see that it points to the possibility of the Spirit disempowering those who set themselves against Yahweh. So actually uh, weakening those who would be opponents to God. So let's look at some key passages that are going to show us these motifs. Obviously we're doing a very high level broad brush, but um, the first one is in 1 Samuel chapter 10 verses 5 through 11. After that you will come to Gibeah of God where uh, there are Philistine there are Philistine garrisons. When you arrive at the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place prophesying. They will pre be preceded by harps, tambourines, flutes, and lyres. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you. You will prophesy with them, and you will be transformed. When these signs have happened to you, do whatever your circumstances require, because God is with you. So this is a prophecy being given to Saul prior to his being anointed as the first king of Israel. Then we get to verse 9. 
When Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all the signs came about that day. When Saul and his servants arrived at Gibeah, a group of prophets met him. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully on him, and he prophesied along with them. Everyone who knew him previously and saw him prophesy with the prophets asked each other, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So, we see that God is going to choose a king, and he chooses Saul, and he makes it visible that that's who's anointed, because he begins prophesying. And as we're going to see later on, this prophecy is really an ecstatic experience. It is not, um, most likely, it is not some sort of actual words where he's foretelling the future, or he's glorifying God, or things of like things like that. And um, we see, by the way, that this is a little bit of a contrast with Judges in that it is not physically visible when the Holy Spirit has come on him. Rather, we just see that he begins to prophesy. So it's an internal thing that happens, and then there's an, out, an external manifestation. Okay, then we get to 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 5 through 7. Any questions about that? Thoughts on that? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Go ahead. Well, we don't know, and, and I'm going to show you why we would think most likely these are ecstatic experiences in a little while, but because Saul's going to be involved in that kind of activity throughout his life from this point forward, um, but we don't have any, there's no one wrote it down or, or whatever. And ecstatic. Ecstatic would be um, more like what you would think would happen if you went into a charismatic church today and heard people speaking in tongues. Okay. Yes. Yes. But you got to remember that ecstatic experiences were called prophesying um, and they happened amongst pagans as well um, at this time, a lot, very frequently. Okay. So um, the second experience that he has uh, with the Holy Spirit is in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 5 through 7. Just then, when Saul was coming in from the field behind his oxen, What's the matter with the people? Why are they weeping? Saul inquired, and they repeated to him the words of the men of, from Jabesh. When Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God suddenly came powerfully on him, and his anger burned furiously. He took a team of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by messengers who said, This is what will be done to the ox of anyone who doesn't march behind Saul and Samuel. As a result, the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they went out united." So the northern town of Jabesh-Gilead was going to be was was um, was conquered by the Ammonites, and Saul learns of the Ammonites conquering them, and he's filled with rage. And so uh, the Holy Spirit comes on him, and the Holy Spirit enables him to to raise an army. And so this is going to be similar to what we saw saw in the book of Judges, but there are some differences here. Um, even though the public designation of Saul as king happens back in chapter 10, his first military conquest doesn't happen until chapter 11. That's not how it worked in Judges. In Judges, the Holy Spirit would not come down, come onto the person and fill them with power until the moment in which they had to act. So you have the anointing of the king, and his anointing is confirmed as the king, and then later on um, he becomes a military conquering hero. 
Okay. All right, then we come to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And this is a kind of an interesting narrative. The Lord says to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. So Saul has disappointed God. God has decided to reject him as king and is now going to select David to replace Saul. So he takes the prophet Samuel and he sends him to Jesse. Then we get to verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Samuel, then skipping to verse 11, Samuel asked him, Are these all the sons you have? So he goes through all of his sons, and God doesn't anoint any of them. God doesn't say to Samuel, This is the guy. So he's like, There's got to be somebody else. So he's like, Are these all your sons? There is still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here, which made everybody upset because they're hungry. And so Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Now, what's interesting here is that, first, nothing happens when David is anointed externally. He doesn't prophesy. He doesn't win a battle. There's no external thing to prove Yahweh has anointed him as had happened all the way up till now in every example of the Holy Spirit. And the second thing is, it stays, the Holy Spirit... Um, stays with David from that day forward, where the Holy Spirit up to this point has been given and then not there, and then given and then not there as the need might arise. Okay, and then of course the, the narrative is going to shift back to Saul at this point, and we're not going to we're not going to hear from David until he gets brought into his court in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Okay, any thoughts or questions about this so far? Yes. Comparison to Saul. Saul had an experience with the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't speak like the Holy Spirit came on powerfully when David was with him from that point. Mm -hmm. So Saul had still experienced a, a temporary mm -hmm. experience. Correct. I wonder how much that has to do with his relationship directly with God. Well, but so like we said before, did Saul become this super righteous man at that point? No, he did not. Uh, we're, we're, we're continuing this motif of the Holy Spirit is given as an anointing and as a sign that somebody is selected, but it is not related to any sort of transformation that takes place at this point, at this point in the Holy Spirit's revelation. Yes? Oh, it's almost kind of uh, like whenever the Lord, let's say in Acts, whenever he tells Paul, like, go forth, there's still more people who are going to be saved. So it's almost as if it's a picture of the Holy Spirit anointing or God choosing people. Yes. Who are going to end up believing later on. Yes. So you're, you're um, uh, I mean, what you're saying is good. It, we're, we're, you're fast forwarding a little bit because we're going to see this motif of the Lord's anointed receive the Holy Spirit. And it's a confirmation that they are 
in God's family or that they're chosen by God. And that's going to happen on a very broad scale once we get to the New Testament. Here in the Old Testament, it's happening very selectively. As we saw already, the Holy Spirit was even uh, used, uh, the Holy Spirit even chose to use non-believers or non-Jews, right? Okay. Yes. Would that be similar to our discussion that we had earlier whenever uh, the Lord's talking to Samuel, saying, don't spend your time praying for Saul anymore because I've made my decision, you leave Saul to me, mm-hmm. and that way don't waste your time doing that, praying for him, similar to what we were talking about, sin and not and, and what sin would be unto death. Those mm-hmm. Could be. Could be. I mean, you know, uh, I don't know Saul's eternal uh, status, but I got to believe it probably was not a good day when Saul met God or will meet God at the judgment. I, 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 because, I mean, how much more could you be given <laughs> at, at that point than him? No, I yeah, I agree with you. I mean, what I'm saying is you're I like your tie-in to the 1st John passage because here you have Saul who received every possible advantage and still got into witchcraft and idolatry and you know, rebelled in a big way against God. Well, Paul tells us to listen to the Holy Spirit on who to pray for, how to pray, what to pray for. Because we don't, we don't want to be praying against God. Yes. Okay. So, here we get to a really interesting thing where Saul's going to send people to do a task and they keep getting uh, di- diverted, if you will. They keep getting distracted and he ultimately has to go himself and we'll see if he's any less distracted. So, so David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him everything Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel left and stayed at Naoth. When it was reported to Saul that David was at Naoth in Ramah, he sent agents to seize David. However, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying with Samuel leading them, the Spirit of God came on Saul's agents, and they also started prophesying. So this is where I was saying that we're going to get some indication that it's just this ecstatic thing that we don't really understand because basically what's going to happen is they're going to become worthless. They're going to just start, who knows what we're looking at here, but they begin prophesying and when they reported to Saul, he sent other agents and guess what? They also began prophesying. So Saul tried again and sent a third group of agents and even they began prophesying. Then Saul himself went to Ramah. He came to the large cistern at Seku and asked, Where are Samuel and David? At Naoth in Ramah, someone said. So he went to Naoth in Ramah. The Spirit of God also came on him, and as he walked along, he prophesied until he entered Naoth in Ramah. Saul then removed his clothes and also prophesied before Samuel. He collapsed and lay naked all that day and all that night. That is why they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Well, there's your ecstatic. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, there are some scholars who argue he wasn't technically naked. He would have had like his little loincloth on or something like that. But nonetheless, he's not really maintaining a very uh, 
I don't know, uh, a dignified demeanor, right, when this is happening. And so this is why we think that there was some, some sort of ecstatic experience that was happening. But we also are seeing here, is Saul trying to do God's will in pursuing David here? What's, what's Saul's goal in pursuing David? Hmm? He wants to murder him. So the Holy Spirit comes upon these agents of death and basically prevents them from killing David because they just start, I don't know, I can just imagine they're blathering and they're in this kind of weird spiritual state and more agents show up and they end up, it's almost infectious. And then Saul shows up like, well, if you got to do something right, you got to do it yourself, right? And he goes marching down there and wham, the Holy Spirit comes upon him powerfully and he has the exact same result. And the end is that he's not able to murder David. So here we see the Holy Spirit actually disempowering those who had um, been, in, been trying to operate against God's will. So David Firth in the Biblical Theology of the Holy Spirit says, It seems clear that prophesying in Samuel does not refer to verbal utterance given by Yahweh, but rather reflects a form of ecstatic behavior under the Spirit's influence. At the, this point, we therefore have something entirely new. Previous references to the Spirit indicated a means by which Yahweh empowered someone to work for Him, but here the Spirit acts independently of human servant, disempowering those who oppose Yahweh's purposes. Any thoughts or questions on that? Yeah. Tell me about that. It makes it where you can't fit him into a box. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Where it's very, very clear how everything works, and these are the rules. Well, you know, this is no different in the Old Testament than when Elijah said, bring down a fire. God chose to do a physical manifestation of his power, mm -hmm. changed the rules of physics, mm -hmm. and dropped fire down on that altar and burned it up to a Mm -hmm. no matter how soaked it was this is no different instead of sending physical he does it he's, it's a psychic attack you know God accomplishes his purposes by temporarily turning these guys into babbling baboons mm -hmm. and you know yeah. so it's he, he can choose when he wants to bend the rules of his own chemistry set to make something no question yeah and, and it's not that that I don't like feel that it's just that it, there, there's a certain Well, and the thing we're not leaving, putting in here in this discussion that makes it more uncomfortable is the baleful spirit. God sends a what used to be called the baleful spirit in, in our more modern translation. They just call it an evil spirit to torment Saul. I thought you said bale. No, bale, B-A-L-E. Gotcha. He sends an evil spirit to torment Saul at the same time. So Saul has this evil spirit messing with him as a punishment. And then in this particular case, the actual Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, is engaged in disempowering him. Yes. 
But what we're seeing is, oh, Tom, you have one thought? Um, really, it was just a question, kind of looking for a scripture reference about the seed that's scattered, mm -hmm. some of it in shallow soil, some of mm -hmm. it in good soil. Mm -hmm. Anybody know? I've been searching for it, and I can't seem to find it. Yeah, it's in Matthew and Luke. Mm -hmm. I'll give it to you after the class. Yeah, so... Um, so, but here's the, th here's, the, here's the point. Like, let's not get lost in what we're doing here. What we're trying to understand is, you know, most people think of the Holy Spirit as a New Testament, I don't know, a topic, phenomenon, whatever, right? That the Holy Spirit somehow gets involved in the world starting at Acts chapter 2. And what we're showing you is that the Holy Spirit was engaged from the creation. We looked at that. We looked at the Pentateuch and what we see there. And then we're seeing how God has progressively revealed who the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit operates through Scripture. And it started with, I use the Holy Spirit to be the indicator that someone is picked. And then there's no internal transformation that happens. It's just, it's just a sign. And then we're going to just see that continuing to progress all the way up to... The New Testament. And when we get to the New Testament then, once we understand this Old Testament backdrop, it's going to make a lot of what happens in the New Testament related to the Holy Spirit make way more sense. Like when we're looking at those passages, like the fulfillment of the Joel 2 prophecy and things like that, it's going to make it look make a lot more sense. Make sense to you guys? Is that good? So let's not lose the sight of what we're doing here. I don't expect us all to like suddenly be able to spout off everything about the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit, but we're touching on these high points of like, here's where we see the Holy Spirit really emphasized in the, in the historical books. Well, you know, except for the lack of the actual use of the word spirit in Exodus, you could make the argument that we've seen this mm -hmm. about <clears throat> ten times. We see God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Mm -hmm. He had to do that somehow. Mm -hmm. This is probably, probably similar to what we're seeing in these verses. Sure. Because God somehow... Reached out into Pharaoh and go, you know, nope, you're going to turn the screws a little tighter now. Yep. You're just going to keep turning them because eventually I'm going to overcome you anyway. I'm going to prove that I'm right. Amen. He does that somehow, and it's probably through the Spirit. It would make the most sense. Okay. You just don't use the word. Yes, and that gets back to when we, we had the whole discussion about which which places do we even look at and emphasize this Holy Spirit, right? And trying to be smart about that. So, okay. Good stuff. Good discussion. Uh Let's all figure out if you're coming to lunch with us in Colorado or not. But uh, and other than that, I'll see you guys next week. No, no. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.